0: Hello there, and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. Today is part two of our three-part series in the book of Micah, and this episode is entitled Micah and the 50-50 Prophecy. Micah is smack in the middle of the Bible. There are 66 books in the Protestant Bible, and of those, the 33rd book is the book of of Micah. Now Micah is surrounded by several other smaller books that are named after men, and this section of the Bible is known as the prophets. There are major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and there are minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Now you may ask, what is the difference between a major prophet and a minor prophet, And the only difference is the length of writing. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel are much longer than the rest of the other 12 prophets. So when you consider this section of the Bible, you will realize that there are 16 books of the Bible that are devoted to the prophets. And when you consider that there are 66 books in the Bible total, this is a significant percentage of the Bible that is devoted to these prophets. It is nearly 25% of all of Scripture. Now it's here that most Christians would ask a sensible question. Why is nearly 25% of the Bible devoted to the prophets? And most Christian churches in America respond with this answer. Because the prophets accurately foretell the life of Jesus Christ. Now, you may ask a follow-up question, which is, why does it matter if the prophets predicted Jesus? And the church would respond with something like this, because their prophecies show that the life of Jesus Christ was no accident. So the church would encourage you to study the book of Micah to read the prophecies that predict the life of Jesus Christ. These predictions would then show that Jesus is in fact the Son of God that he was no accident, and he was part of God's plan all along. In fact, in Micah, we find one of the strongest predictions of all of Jesus' life, and it's found in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. We read, But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are one of the little clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to rule in Israel, whose origin is from of old, From ancient days. Most Christians and most churches will point to this verse and say Micah is predicting that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, will be born in Bethlehem. Micah is writing these words in the 7th or 8th century BCE. And it's during this time that we must acknowledge that Bethlehem was not an unknown town. Bethlehem is attributed to be the birthplace of King David, who many Israelites believe to be Israel's greatest king. So here's Micah writing about how one whose origin is from of old, from ancient days, will one day be born in Bethlehem and will eventually rule Israel. Seven to 800 years later, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. And churches and Christians point to this birth as a fulfillment of Micah's prophecy so that you and I can rest in assurance and in faith that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. Which is why there's this story in John chapter 7 that is really perplexing to Christians today. This story begins with Jesus entering a festival. This festival is the Festival of Booths. And Jesus sneaks into the festival and he begins to teach. And in John chapter 7, verse 37, Jesus says these words, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me, and let the one who believes in me drink. Now, while these words may mean nothing to you today, they meant a great deal to the people who were hearing these words. In the next verse, we read, When they heard these words, some in the crowd said, This is really the prophet. Others said, this is the messiah but some asked surely the messiah does not come from galilee does he has not the scripture said that the messiah is descended from david and comes from bethlehem the village where david lived so in other words there's these jews who are at the festival of the booths they hear jesus teaching some people start saying he is the messiah and other people hear this claim that Jesus is the Messiah, and they say, wait a second. Isn't the Messiah supposed to be born in Bethlehem? This guy, Jesus, is from Nazareth. And Nazareth is 70 miles to the north of Bethlehem. Imagine someone from Redland saying, I'm from L.A. <laughs> we all would laugh in their face and say, this isn't L.A., bro. So there are people in John's gospel who cannot believe that Jesus is the Messiah because he's from Nazareth and not from Bethlehem, which makes the next verse even stranger. John writes, So there was a division in the crowd because of him. And the story at the festival of the booths comes to a close. Now let's imagine that we could speak with Jesus and hear Jesus' response in concrete words. I would love to ask Jesus why didn't you tell the crowd that you were actually born in Bethlehem? Because it seems, Jesus, like you could have saved a lot of division if you would have just heard their concerns and said, well, I know you think I'm from Nazareth, but I moved there later in life. I was actually born in Bethlehem, therefore I am the Messiah. So I would love to ask Jesus, why didn't you tell the crowd you were born in Bethlehem? to which I imagine Jesus would respond with a question. He would ask me, who said I was born in Bethlehem? Now it's here that I would say, well, we're reading John's gospel, so John told us that you were born in Bethlehem. To which I imagine in this conversation, Jesus would then turn to John the gospel writer and saying, did you tell people I was born in Bethlehem? John would then respond by saying, no, I didn't write anywhere that you were born in Bethlehem. I told people that you were from Nazareth. Now, Jesus would turn back to me and say, well, where did you hear, Craig, that I was born in Bethlehem? And I would say, well, someone in the gospel writers did it. So then Jesus would invite Matthew, Mark, and Luke to be part of this conversation as well. And he would ask them the same question. Did you tell people I was born in Bethlehem? Matthew would say, yes, I did write that you were born in Bethlehem. Luke would be quick to agree and say, I also wrote that you were born in Bethlehem. However, Mark would respond and say, nah, I didn't write that you were born in Bethlehem. So we have four Gospels in the Bible that all tell the life story of Jesus Christ. Matthew and Luke are in agreement that Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Mark never once mentions Bethlehem in his entire gospel. Instead, he introduces Jesus as being from Nazareth. And when you turn to John's gospel, John mentions Bethlehem only once, and it's only in the story that we talked about earlier, where people cannot believe that Jesus is the Messiah because he was not born in Bethlehem. Instead, John indicates heavily that Jesus was, in fact, born in Nazareth. Most Christians I know at this point would look at Matthew and Luke's gospel, both testifying that Jesus was born in Bethlehem and say, those are the two that I'm going to trust. Those explicitly mention that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and they seem to be the reliable source material for how Jesus was brought into this world. However, I think it's important for every Christian to understand that Matthew and Luke testify that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but both tell radically different stories about how Joseph and Mary ended up in Bethlehem. According to Matthew, Joseph and Mary's hometown is Bethlehem. Luke, on the other hand, tells us that Joseph and Mary's hometown is Nazareth. These places of origin play out directly into the Christmas story because according to Matthew, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. King Herod is jealous and starts murdering babies so they flee to Egypt. And after Herod's death, they return from Egypt and settle in Nazareth rather than Bethlehem. Luke, on the other hand, tells a story about how Joseph and Mary have to go to Bethlehem for a Roman census, and while they are there, that is the time when Mary gives birth to Jesus in a stable. Most Christians then point to Luke's gospel and say that is the correct interpretation, telling, and historically accurate data of how Jesus came into this world. But there's a major problem with Luke's gospel because Luke cites that this census is initiated by Augustus Caesar. This census also is to be taken of all of the world. The problem with Luke's Gospel is that we have a lot of data and historical records on Augustus Caesar and the Roman Empire. In fact, we have census records of Roman citizens in 28 BCE, 8 BCE, and 14 CE. But we do not have any record of Rome taking a non-citizen census during the reign of Augustus Caesar, which was 27 BCE to 14 CE. This is critically important because Joseph and Mary were not Roman citizens. And so the idea that they would have to go and report in a census of non-Roman citizens requires us to have some paperwork that this existed, and we do not have this paperwork. So when we consider the town of Bethlehem, there's a question that we have to ask when looking at all four Gospels. What if Jesus wasn't born in Bethlehem? Now it's here that you may say to yourself, you know, I heard Craig Hadley was a heretic and now I know he's a heretic. If 17-year-old Craig could hear this podcast, I would think that I was a heretic too. But it's important for us to understand that while we ask this question, what if Jesus wasn't born in Bethlehem? I think Mark and John, the gospel writers, would respond by saying, it doesn't matter. It's okay if Jesus wasn't born in Bethlehem. If Mark and John believed that it did matter that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Mark would have told people where Jesus was from and why he was actually born in Bethlehem. But Mark never once mentions the birth of Jesus. Not only that, but John goes out of his way to tell a story about how people couldn't believe in Jesus because he wasn't born in Bethlehem. And John continues to believe that Jesus still, even being from Nazareth, is in fact the Messiah. What if Jesus wasn't born in Bethlehem? Now, if it's difficult for you to hear these words that I'm asking, there's a question that I would like to ask you. And this question is not meant to be an assault on your beliefs, but is meant to be a question that I would ask across from you at a dinner table. And it's a question of genuine understanding. The question I would ask you is, why does it matter to you where Jesus was born? I want you to think about that answer for a minute. Why does it matter to you the geographical location of Jesus's birth? We may disagree on the answer to this question, But I think it would be helpful if you could articulate your answer to this question. Why does it matter to you where Jesus was born? As I considered this question, I came up with three different answers that people might give to this question. And so I'd like to go through what I would consider to be the three most popular answers to this question and talk about each of those answers individually. So the first answer I would probably hear from someone who says it matters where Jesus was born and if I were to ask why, I think the response would be, well, because the Bible predicted that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem and if Jesus wasn't born in Bethlehem, then he might be a false Christ or an antichrist and we cannot therefore trust the words of Jesus. That is a fair answer. However, when someone says, well, the Bible says that Jesus needs to be born in Bethlehem, you should always stop them and ask them two questions. Where does the Bible say that? And what does the Bible actually say? So when someone says, well, the Bible says that Jesus needs to be born in Bethlehem, where does the Bible say that? And if you look through all of the Old Testament, Do you know how many verses predict that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem? The answer is one. There is just one verse in all of the Hebrew Bible that says that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. And that verse is the one that we read earlier in this podcast, Micah 5, 2. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, Who are one of the little clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to rule in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. That is the only verse that predicts that a Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Now it's here that someone may object and say, while it's just one verse, Craig, it is still a verse that predicts the life of Jesus. To which I would say, I think it's important for us to look at the context of all of Micah 5 because the prophecy doesn't end there. If you go down to verse 5, Micah is continuing this prophecy by saying, and he being this one that will be born in Bethlehem, and he will be Israel's peace. When the Assyrian invades our land and marches through our fortresses, we will raise against him seven shepherds, even eight leaders of men. They will rule the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nibrod with drawn sword, and the one to be born in Bethlehem will deliver us from the Assyrian when he invades our land and marches into our borders. If you are a student of history, you know there is a major problem in Micah's prophecy in the way it relates to Jesus. The Assyrian Empire is one of the great empires in human history. However, in the late 7th century BCE, there was a terrible civil war that left the Assyrian Empire crippled and vulnerable. And because of this, neighboring nations were able to rise up and conquer the Assyrians in 609 BCE. Now, I'm not real great at math, but that is approximately 609 years before the life of Jesus. So you can imagine that Micah is telling this prophecy about how there will be one born in Bethlehem to liberate them from the Assyrians. And 600 years later, Jesus shows up and people point at him and say, you are who Micah was talking about, to which Jesus would respond, where are the Assyrians? Not only that, but it gets more complicated as you continue to read Micah chapter 5. In that same prophecy, we read in verse 10, on that day says the Lord, Then down to verse 13, I will cut off your images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands, and I will uproot your sacred poles from among you and destroy your towns. Now, any student of the word would say this sounds very familiar, and that's because in 2 Kings, we read about a king who did this. This king's name was Hezekiah, and we read these words in chapter 18, verse 4. Hezekiah removed the high places, broke down the pillars, and cut down the sacred pole. So all three specific things that Micah predicted this one born in Bethlehem would do, Hezekiah ended up doing. Not only that, but when you read Micah 1.1, Micah tells us when he is writing these words we read the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of kings Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So Micah is writing during the reign of Hezekiah about a king, Hezekiah, who ends up fighting back and pushing against the Assyrians and also tearing down a sacred pole and who is also born in the line of King David, who was from Bethlehem which raises an extremely important question about Micah chapter 5. Is Micah's prophecy about Jesus Christ? Or is Micah's prophecy about King Hezekiah? The one prophecy in all of the Hebrew Bible that predicts that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem describes a Messiah who is much closer to Hezekiah than to Jesus Christ. If this is difficult for you to hear, then it brings us back to that essential question. Why does it matter to you where Jesus was born? Another may hear this question and say, well, the New Testament tells us how important it is that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So we should trust the New Testament. This is true. In Matthew chapter 2, we read about wise men who come from the east to pay homage to the new king of Judea. The problem is, there is already a king of Judea, and his name is Herod, and he has not recently had a new son. Herod, being the smart and coy politician that he is, asks these wise men, where is this king to be born? We read in Matthew 2 verse 5, the wise men's response. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And it's here that the wise men quote Micah 5.2. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. And so someone could point to Matthew chapter 2 and say, see, Matthew understood that it was essential for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem to fulfill this prophecy in Micah. So therefore, Micah's prophecy is important, Jesus being born in Bethlehem is important, and they both need each other to show their own importance. There's just one problem with that logic. And that problem is found in the same chapter of Matthew. Matthew chapter 2 Verse 23 records what happens when Jesus and his family returns from Egypt after Herod's death. We read, There he made his home in a town called Nazareth, so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarean. So Matthew says there's a prophet who predicted that Jesus would in fact be a Nazarean. And this move to Nazareth was a fulfillment of that prophecy. The problem with that logic is that this prophecy, he will be called a Nazarean, is nowhere in the Bible. We've searched high and low for any kind of writing or verse that could be interpreted that a Messiah will be called a Nazarene, and we can't find it. And so Matthew's pulling a prophecy from a source that we don't have, and he's saying, see, Jesus fulfills this other biblical prophecy. I tell you this because Matthew was a human being like you and like me. Unlike you and unlike me, Matthew grew up in a time long before the scientific method. Because of this, Matthew doesn't understand the fallacy of confirmation bias. Now, confirmation bias is defined as the tendency to interpret new evidence as confirmation of one's existing beliefs or theories. And Matthew unquestionably believes that Jesus is the Messiah. And so Matthew looks for writings and prophecies that confirm that which he already knows and believes. So if someone says to me, well, Jesus being born in Bethlehem is important because the New Testament writers told us it was important. I would respond by saying, yes, they did. However, Matthew struggles with confirmation bias. The other New Testament writers also struggle with confirmation bias. And if you were born in that era before the scientific method, my guess is that you and me would also struggle with confirmation bias. If this is difficult to hear, then I would bring you back to that question that has guided our discussion this far. Why does it matter to you where Jesus was born? The third answer that I can imagine someone saying to this question goes something like this. The birthplace of Jesus matters because the church has told me and insisted that it matters that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Once again, that is a fair answer, but it becomes problematic when you look at it closer. To look at it closer, I want to go back to that question we asked about all 16 prophets and why we have 25% of the Bible dedicated to these prophecies. Imagine asking the church the question, why does it matter if the prophets predicted Jesus? The church responds by saying because their prophecies show that the life of Jesus Christ was no accident. While that sounds good, if you take that line of thinking just a little bit further, you can imagine the church saying, and if the life of Jesus Christ is not an accident, then we have the truth. And if we have the truth then that means we have more truth than everyone else. This is important because what I have found with prophecy and the prophets and all of these things that predict the life of Jesus Christ is that Christianity often places a high value on prophecy in an effort to establish the church's authority. And so these prophecies become less and less about Jesus Christ And more and more about the church and clergy becoming more and more powerful. And this is why I have found the church place such a strong emphasis on 16 prophets predicting the life of Christ, even though these 16 prophets rarely, if ever, mention a Messiah or Bethlehem or anything else that can be interpreted as a prediction. Now, this may be difficult to hear, but it guides us back to our guiding question. Why does it matter to you where Jesus was born? I have asked this question numerous times throughout this podcast because I believe that we have a broken understanding of prophecy. Throughout my life, I have heard Christians speak about the importance of prophecy, why we need to understand prophecy and trust prophecy. But I have found that when I ask those same Christians what prophecy actually is, they struggle to answer. Anyone that believes that prophecy is important should be able to define what prophecy is. So to define it for us, I think we should go to the dictionary to start there and see if the dictionary gives us an adequate definition. I looked up the word prophecy in the New Oxford American Dictionary. And this dictionary defined prophecy in just two words, a prediction. I have to tell you, I hate this definition. To demonstrate why I hate this definition, I'm going to tell you a story. Now, the story involves two sisters, uh, one of which is a close friend of mine. And we're going to call this close friend of mine, Mary. Now, Mary has a younger sister who is very detailed oriented type A personality We are going to call her Martha. Now, Mary is quite a bit more conservative than me, even though we are good friends. Not only that, but this story takes place shortly after Mary got engaged. So Mary got engaged, and it was just months away from her wedding, and Martha, the younger sister who's kind of picked up after Mary and her lack of attention to detail, (laughs) started asking Mary about her upcoming wedding. She asked about the location and the venue and the pastor, and then she asked, do you have any music? And Mary said, oh yeah, we will have music. To which Martha said, what do you mean will have? And Mary said, well, you know, I really want a piano player, but I haven't spoken to anyone yet. This caused a panic attack within Martha because Martha said to herself, this wedding is not that far away. We have got to book a piano player. And Mary said to her younger sister, Martha, she said, oh, don't worry about it, Martha. The Lord will provide. Well, Martha did worry about it. She worried so much that she began calling her friends that play the piano until she found one a couple weeks later that was willing to play at Mary's wedding. With that in mind, she went back to her sister, Mary, and said, Mary, good news. I found a piano player for you. Mary responded to hearing this news by saying four words. The Lord has provided. Martha became angry. She looked at her sister Mary and said, No, I am the Lord. I provided this piano player. (laughs) Which is just an amazing line. (laughs) Now I tell you this story because Mary at one point said, The Lord will provide a piano player. And sure enough, there was a piano player. According to the dictionary... This is a prophecy, except it isn't. The Lord will provide isn't a prophecy. You know what it is? It's laziness. It's uninspiring. And this idea that prophecy is simply a whim of a prediction shows why we don't care about prophecy in 2019. So I think we need to redefine the word prophecy so that it helps and even inspires us today. To talk about prophecy then, I wanna talk about prophets. Now, if you've been with us over the past several years at Paradox and before that at The Shadow, you know that we are going through all of the books of the Bible. Micah is our 43rd book in our 66 part series that we started all the way back in 2013. Because of that, we have done 10 prophets and Micah is the 11th prophet in our series. After studying all of these prophets in depth, the best definition I can give you of a prophet is someone who calls attention to pain we prefer to avoid and asks us to do something about it. Prophets are the people who see the system for what it is, who hear the voices of the marginalized, the oppressed, and those who are discriminated against. And they are not content to allow that system to roll on with those people being steamrolled. No, a prophet stands up and says, these people, my people, I am being hurt by these decisions. Can you please change and do something about it? A prophet, my brothers and sisters, is someone who calls attention to pain we prefer to avoid and asks us to do something about it. So to stay in line with that definition of prophet, I have found that a prophecy anticipates where God is leading us in the future and then asks us to change today to bring that future into a reality. A prophecy should always ask for and inspire change and should never just talk about keeping or maintaining the status quo. With that definition we're able to discard people looking for piano players and saying that the Lord will provide as prophecy. And instead, it allows us to talk about the greatest prophecy that has been uttered in American history. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech from 1963. When we look at this speech as prophecy, we recognize that Dr. King is asking for drastic and dire change from white America. In this prophecy, he calls out the horrors of racially motivated police brutality. He talks about the sin of economic inequality. And he points to a justice system who is more concerned with the color of a skin than with the content of character. As he is wrapping up this prophecy, he begins to call out different locations of America, And he talks about how he has a dream that freedom will ring from California to Tennessee. And he goes around all of the corners and spaces of America. And in the very last paragraph of this prophecy, he writes and speaks these words asking for change. When we allow freedom to ring, when we let it ring from every city and every hamlet, from every state and from every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, great God almighty, we are free at last. Dr. King asks us to change to allow freedom to ring because that is where God is leading us. My brothers and sisters, a prophecy anticipates where God is leading us in the future and then asks us to change today to bring that future into reality. With that definition of prophecy, there is a very powerful prophecy found in the book of Micah, In chapter four, just one chapter before what we've been studying today, Micah writes in the days to come. In other words, Micah is looking forward to the future and he's going to talk about where he sees God leading Israel somewhere down the road and what we can change to one day get there. In verse three, he writes, God shall judge between many peoples and shall arbitrate between strong nations far away. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Micah grew up and lived in a war-torn country. There were powers to the north and powers to the south and a rising power to the east. And so Micah knew nothing but war and conquest and death. And yet Micah has this sense that where God is leading the people of Judah is not to become the most powerful military in the Middle East, but instead to become the most just nation in the Middle East. Micah is anticipating that God's leading them to more justice and not bigger weapons, and that justice is the antidote to war that will eventually cause us to take our weapons and melt them and shape them into farming equipment. Micah is not alone in believing this. In fact, about seven to 800 years later, a man named Jesus Christ is born. And when he is born, he has disciples and he's wandering around the Middle East until eventually he ends up in Jerusalem and one of his disciples, Judas, betrays him. When Judas betrays him, he shows up with a mob that is there to arrest and eventually kill Jesus. In self-defense, Peter pulls out a sword and begins to attack the people who are going to arrest and kill Jesus. Now, it's here that most Americans identify with Peter and recognize Peter acting out in self-defense and say that is moral. To stand your ground in the face of violence is a moral act. But it's here that Jesus turns to Peter and says to him, put away your sword. For all who live by the sword will also die by the sword. And Jesus fully trusts and lives and I would argue fulfills Micah's prophecy. That justice, not violence, will eventually lead to peace. A few chapters later, Jesus is speaking with Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea. As they are speaking, Pontius Pilate is saying, I've heard that you are a king. And Jesus responds by saying, you seem to say so. And Pilate says, if you are a king, then where is your kingdom? Why are they not fighting to liberate you? Shouldn't they pick up swords and come and attack us right now? And it's here that Jesus responds by saying, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over. But as it is, that's not who my kingdom is. Kingdoms in this world are built on violence. But Jesus doesn't believe that will lead to peace. And in doing this in the waning moments of his life, He fulfills, accepts, and moves forward with Micah's prophecy in chapter 4. But Micah isn't done. In chapter 4, verse 4, he is talking about the days to come. And he says these words, But they shall all sit under their own vines and under their own fig trees, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Micah believes that God is leading them to live lives that are free of fear. Now, I believe that if we could interview Micah on this podcast and ask him about what it meant to live a life free of fear, Micah would talk about the elimination of the Assyrians. Jesus agreed with this prophecy to a point. He believed that God desires for all of us to live without fear, but Jesus taught in radical ways that you can live without fear and it doesn't depend on the elimination of your enemies. When you look closely at the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount is trying to tell people that you can live without anxiety. Now, it's here that we must remember that Jesus is a poor and oppressed Jew speaking to other poor and oppressed Jews. The people listening to the Sermon on the Mount would have rioted if a Roman soldier came and said the exact same words. But Jesus, in the middle of his plight and oppression, begins to speak about how it's possible to live without fear. He asks the people who are listening, and why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in All his glory was not clothed like one of these. A few chapters later, Jesus is speaking about persecutions that will probably happen in the near future. But as he's speaking about these persecutions, he encourages the people who are listening to not worry. He then points at a sparrow who's flying overhead. And he says, there's no reason to worry. Because even when a sparrow falls from the sky... Your heavenly father looks on that sparrow with love. How much more valuable are you in God's eyes than a sparrow? And yet God still loves the sparrow. Jesus truly believed, and I would argue fulfilled, Micah's prophecy that we can live without fear. But Micah isn't done. In chapter 4, verse 6, Micah writes, On that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. Now, it's a difficult thing for us to hear in our modern mindset about God who afflicts suffering and pain on others. But it's important for us to understand that Micah is a product of his culture and of his time. There was not a theology that included a devil In Micah's day. That wouldn't show up for centuries later. Instead, Micah and the people around him believed that everything that happened on earth was the will of God. So if you are wealthy, then it's because God wanted you to be wealthy. And if you are poor, it's because God wanted you to be poor. And if you are sick, well, you must have done something to deserve it. Otherwise, God would not allow it to be so. So here Micah is writing about that theological understanding of God by saying, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. In verse 7, God says through Micah, the lame I will make the remnant, which is the holy chosen few, and those who were cast off a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion now and forevermore. Micah looks at the sick and the lame And he looks at these people who have been cast off and pushed aside and condemned by the religious institution and proclaims that the sick and lame understand God better than the rest of us. Now, this is a pretty radical idea for Micah's day and age. And it was a pretty radical idea during Jesus's day and age. In Mark chapter one, we read about Jesus approaching a leper and touching him before he's healthy and then making him well. The people around Jesus could not comprehend this. Why would you voluntarily subject yourself to touching someone who lived in sin? The next chapter, Mark chapter two, we read about four friends who lower a paralytic through a roof to be healed by Jesus. Before Jesus heals this person, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Allow that to sink in for a moment. Jesus is pointing to this person who has been condemned and told that the reason he is being punished is because God is angry with him. And Jesus sees this person in his broken state and says, Oh no, son, your sins are forgiven. After the sins are forgiven and people start to murmur and whisper about how angry they are that Jesus could forgive someone who is clearly in a sinful state, then Jesus heals the man and he walks out of the room. Another story is about a woman who is chronically bleeding, and she has this sense that if she can just touch Jesus, that she will be healed. So she touches the hem of his garment. Jesus turns around and points to this woman who has been an outcast, who has been told that she brought this on herself and says, woman, your faith is great. Jesus Absolutely believed Micah's prophecy that the lame will be the remnant, that the people who have been cast off and told by religious systems that they are not worthy in God's eyes will be the very place that we can see God again. And so, when we consider the book of Micah, we have two very different prophecies in Micah chapter 4 and Micah chapter 5. In Micah 5, we read about how a son of Bethlehem will conquer the Assyrians. But in Micah chapter 4, we read about how justice can bring an end to war, how you can live without fear, and how the sick and the outcasts are the remnant. To which I have a question. Which of these prophecies did Jesus actually fulfill? Micah chapter 4 then why do we celebrate and place so much emphasis on Micah chapter 5? Micah chapter 5 is empirical data. Micah chapter 4 actually asks you and me to change in the same way that Jesus Christ dared to change 2,000 years ago. And when it comes to prophecy and trying to distinguish between the two that are valuable, between Prophecies that are like Micah chapter 4 and like Micah chapter 5. I have found a question helps me to distinguish the value of the prophecy. The question is this. Does this prophecy establish someone or something's authority? Or does this prophecy inspire me to serve? Inspiring prophecy will always lead you toward compassion, toward love toward the things that jesus said again and again that this is the way of the kingdom but when someone wields prophecy as a way to establish authority to say we have better truth than the other to say that you should listen to us because we're more right than everyone else that is when prophecy falls flat and is in fact worthless but when prophecy asks you and me to change, to serve in love the ones around us, that, my brothers and sisters, is inspiring. May we remember that a prophecy anticipates where God is leading us in the future and then asks us to change today to bring that future into reality. May we have eyes to see where God is leading us in the future And may we have courage to change today to bring that future into reality. May we see and embrace Jesus Christ.